We have some already on the front pew, and we have some coming up. Woohoo! I'm glad you guys were up here. We may not have enough room on the front pew for everybody, so if there's not enough room, you guys can sit on, some of you can sit on the floor. Um, Craig, there is a video, but I don't want it to be shown yet. I have a story I want to tell the kids. Oh, I forgot to tell you guys. You need to go get all your streamers. Come go get your streamers. Go get them. Everyone go in the box and grab a streamer and come right back. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Go get a streamer or a, some kind of a something. That's cool. Come on over. Once you got it, come back and sit down. Shane, come on over and sit down. Everyone get your sting. Streamer, come and sit down again. That's your mom's favorite color? Good job. Good job. If there's not room on the bench, just come and sit on the floor because in a few minutes you're going to be standing up anyway. Come on up, guys. All right, I'm going to tell you guys a real quick story. There is a celebration in the Jewish faith, and I have I, the, the people that are Jewish are, are, are brothers and sisters to us. They, they worship God. They just don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah yet, but they will. The Bible says that they will eventually. But one of the things that our brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, do every year is they celebrate what's called Purim. Have you guys ever heard that term before, Purim? The celebration of Purim is about a story that's in the Bible called the story of Esther. Have you guys ever heard of the story of Esther? Do you know Esther was a very beautiful young woman who loved God? Now, I'm going to tell you this story, but I have before I tell you the story, I have to give you some instructions. Just like our brothers and sisters who are Jewish when they celebrate Purim, Every time the name of Esther is mentioned in the story, you guys wave your, way, your, your, your banners and you go, yay! And then I'm going to tell you another name. And the name that I tell you is Haman. Every time I say the name Haman, you guys have to go, boo! Okay, seriously, so practice it. I'm going to say Esther. Yay! No, 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 you guys have to be loud. Yay! Perfect. Now say, I'll say, Haman. Oh, that's not loud enough. Haman. That's it. Okay. Every time I say Esther, you do. And every time I say Haman. Loud. Got to be really loud. You know what? Seriously, when they do the stories in their synagogues, when they say the name Haman, everyone makes so much noise because they don't even want to be able to hear the name. That's how much they don't like that name. You know why they don't like that name? Because he hated the Jewish people. He wanted to kill all of the Jewish people. Haman was a mean guy. You guys forgot. Let me do that again. Haman was a mean guy. Perfect. But Esther, Esther was a beautiful woman who loved God and she lived in the king's palace. She was the queen. Did you know that Esther, Esther was the queen and the king loved Esther very much. And Haman, he didn't like the Jewish people. But guess what? Haman 
He didn't know that Esther was Jewish. He didn't know that she was Jewish. And guess what happened? Esther, she had an uncle and his name was Mordecai. And Mordecai came to her and said, Esther, you need to go talk to the king because Haman is trying to get us killed. Haman has a plan where all of us Jewish people are going to be killed. And you need to go talk to the king and ask him to stop that plan. And Esther, she said, I'm not allowed to just go into the king's room. I can't go into the throne room without permission. If I do and I don't and I walk up to the throne, the king has to hold out his scepter. Do you guys know what a scepter is? That's the stick that the king holds. And the king has to hold out his scepter to me. And if he does, then I can touch it and I won't be killed. But if I go in there and he doesn't hold his scepter out to me, then I have to be killed. And Esther was afraid. Oh, you missed it. Esther was afraid. But her uncle Mordecai said, you need to go. You need to go. And guess what he said? If you don't go... God will raise someone else to bring deliverance for the people of Israel. But you won't get the blessing of being that person. And Esther, she said, okay, I'll trust God, but we need to pray. And so they prayed for three days and they prayed and they fasted for three days. And then Esther, she went into the king's throne room and guess what happened? The king held his scepter out to her and she didn't get killed. And he said, what do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything. And she said, Haman has a plan to kill my people. And I don't want him to kill. I don't want my people to be killed. So please, king, please stop it. And so the king did. Good story, huh? Every time, every time, every year, the Jewish people celebrate that story of Esther. And Haman. And how God rescued the, the Israelite people from the hand of a very bad man named Haman. Boo! Okay, but see, it was still God that did it. Remember, because Esther couldn't go into the throne room unless God took care of it. And so she went and prayed and asked God to take care of her. And she fasted. Do you know what fasting means? Yes. What? You don't eat. And so she didn't eat or fat or, or and she prayed for three whole days. And then finally, God rescued her. God is so big and so strong and so mighty. God can do anything, no matter how hard the thing is that we're facing. And so I want us to get up and sing the song that we've been practicing. Remember last week I showed it to you and actually be practicing. Everybody stand up. We're going to watch the video. See if you can remember the, the motions. OK, go ahead, Craig. Show us the video. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty.
I'm going to pray for you guys. Jesus, please bless these, in a second, please bless these kids. Help them, Lord, to learn that no matter what they're facing, you are so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing you can't do. And if they'll put their trust in you, then they can walk in confidence, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, I have to give you some instructions. Normally, on a regular Sunday, you would go out of here and go to your class. But your teacher, Miss Tammy, can't be here today. And so because of that, I have to ask you guys to go back and sit with your folks, okay? Because we don't have class this morning because your teacher couldn't be here this morning, okay? All right, put your stuff back in the box, please. Thank you, guys. Thank you so, so, so much. So what's going to happen the next time you hear the name Esther? Oh, you messed me up. Okay. For the rest of you, Craig, do we happen to have slides? Did the sermon slides come in? They did not. Shame on me. Okay. I was open. All right. I need you guys to pull out your Bibles. I need you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. No, you just have to sit there and look beautiful. Handsome. He can look beautiful if he wants. It's okay. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, unfortunately, even though it's a little bit lengthy, we do need to read through it real quick just so we can get an understanding of what's going on. So, read with me. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel the prophet said to Saul the king, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened lambs and the uh, calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, hmm, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we've devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And so he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. And the Lord said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the Lord, voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I, I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amaleks to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the auction, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Behold, because you have rejected the word of the Lord God has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. 
for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to the king, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came back to him cheerfully saying to himself, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Hard words, hard words. And the problem with stories like this is we get lost in the, all the places and the people, names and that kind of stuff, and you skip over that stuff because it just doesn't make sense to you, but you need to understand what these words are and these names are in order to really get an understanding for this story. Because it's more than simply saying to obey is better than sacrifice. I mean, that is a gist of the story. That is. But you need to understand what was going on in this section of scripture before you just simply take that one little sentence and walk on. So my first question to you is this. God ordered Saul to lead the nation of Israel to completely destroy the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? Does anybody know? Now, if I had my slide, I can show you. But since I don't have my slide, is it there? Well, is the one with the, with the graph showing? The genealogy? Ha ha! It's there. Praise God. Okay, look at the top. Who do you see in the top box? Okay, so Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. He had a son named And Isaac had two kids, one named and one named. Now you notice the line coming out from underneath Esau. So Esau, start again, Jacob became known as Israel. And he had 12 sons, okay? And they are the people that Saul is the king over. 
Saul is being ordered to destroy the people known as the Amalekites. Look at Esau's lineage. Underneath Esau, there are five sons. Eliphaz, Jeguesh, Jeush, Jeush, Jaalam, Korah, Reuel. Look underneath Eliphaz, Amalek. The Amalekites are the people who were born to Amalek. Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, the grandson of Esau, the great-grandson of Isaac, the great-great-grandson of Abraham. So, in a long roundabout way, Saul, the king of Israel, was being ordered to kill and destroy a branch of his great-grandfather's family. One of his cousin groups, if you will. Okay? That speaks volumes. For God to say, kill these people, destroy them totally. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But before we do, if you look in 1 Samuel, you can bring that, take that slide. We'll bring the next slide up if it's available. The next slide should say, who were the Kenites? Is that, is that there? If it's not, there we go. Okay, so bring up the next slide after that. I'm hoping they're going to all come up while we're preaching. There we go. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. I, can, I appreciate you doing it. Saul came to the city of Amalek. This is 1 Samuel 15, verses 5 and 6. Saul came to the city of Amalek. Now, who was Amalek? He was the, the grandson of Esau. Okay? And so he waited in the valley outside of the city of Amalek. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Who were the Kenites, though? Do you have any idea? Okay, I will tell you. It's not in these passages of Scripture that I have on the screen, because there was just way too many passages of Scripture. But if you go back all the way to the story of Moses, if you remember when Moses ran from Pharaoh and ran into the wilderness and lived for 40 years in the wilderness, he came to the land of Midian. And there he met a woman named Zipporah, who was the daughter of the priest of Midian, whose name was Ruel, and also known as Jethro. Jethro, the priest of Midian, was a Kenite. So the Kenites were related by marriage to the Jewish people through the marriage of Moses and Zipporah. Now, look at Judges chapter 1, verse 16. It says, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people. So in the book of Judges, after Joshua leads the nation of Israel to take over the whole land, 
The very first chapter of the book of Judges, we are told that the Kenites, who were Moses' relatives by marriage, joined and lived in the promised land. They weren't Jews, but they were friends and, and family, if you will, like shirt tail relations of the Jews. And so they had settled in there. Now, Saul in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel says, I don't want you to be destroyed with the Amalekites because your people have been good to my people. Why? Not only because of the relationship between Moses and, 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 and Jethro, but what specifically has Kenite, the Kenites done for the Jewish people? Turn to Judges chapter 4. I'm not going to read those, those, all those verses, but just know this is a story about a battle that was taking place. And during the battle, there was a man named Sisera, who was the enemy. And the Jewish people were able to overcome everyone except Sisera, because Sisera got away. He ran. And he ran by a, uh, a tent. And there was a woman who lived in that tent with her husband, and her name was Jael. And she said to him, come into my tent, I'll hide you. So she hides Sisera in her tent and covers him with a carpet. And he says, give me something to drink, I'm so thirsty. So she gives him some milk. And then he's exhausted and he just drank some more milk. So what does he do? He falls asleep in the safety of her tent. And what does she do? She quietly takes a tent peg and the Bible says, pins him to the ground through his temple. Now, it's really gross. We're not going to get into it because kids are at the present. So I don't want this to get to PG. But the reality is, J.L., who was a Kenite, killed the leader of the enemies of the Israelites during their battle. And so when the Israelites were passing by, she said, Hey, come over here. I think I've got somebody you want to see. And so they came and they saw that she had defeated their enemy for them. Which brought great shame on them because for a woman to do that. But the reality was, this is what Saul is referring to back when he, I mean, when he said to the Kenites, I want you guys to get out of here because we're about to do some real hurting on the Amalekites and I don't want you to get caught up in this. So the Kenites go, oh yeah, we better get out of here. So they leave. Again, they weren't the enemy. They were friends of the nation of Israel, but they were living amongst and around. So they had to get out. Because the Amalekites, by order of God, were to be haremed. Bring up that slide, Craig. Have you ever heard this term before? It's harem. C-H-E-R-E-M. It also could be H-E-R-E-M. In Jewish, uh, in, in the way they pronounce Hebrew, it's ch, So it's charem. Anybody heard of this term before? No. Good. I'm going to tell you what it is. Leviticus, bring up the next slide. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28. No devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Go ahead and bring the next slide because I read all the way through. Sorry. 
No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed, for he shall surely be put to death. Let me explain. This is, this is the Levitical law that describes harem. Go back to the harem slide, Craig. Basically what this is saying in the book of Leviticus, in the, in the, in the law of Moses, is there may come a time when you as a nation are asked to harem. It may be a, a piece of property. It may be a valuable event, a, a valuable thing. It may be animals. It may even be a people group. This is not something that normally an individual would choose. This is something that usually it's a nation, a national thing that is they're being ordered to harem. However, I can show you in the book of Acts, and I don't have the reference because I'm just thinking about it now. Um, in the book of Acts, there was a point where the Ephesians had come into right relationship with God and been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it says that they were so motivated for, by their love for God that they literally took all of their scrolls that they had used for witchcraft and for divination and they piled them up and they did a book burning right there in the town as an honor and a glory to God. They, and it says that these books that they burned, these scrolls that they burned, were worth thousands and tens of thousands. And this is an idea of harem, devoting something to God and destroying it so no one else can ever have use of it and never have access to it. That's this idea of harem. So, going back to Samuel chapter 15, go ahead and bring up the why did the Amalekites need to die? Literally, <coughs> when God, through the prophet Samuel, ordered King Saul to harem the Amalekites, which is a law out of Leviticus that says you are to completely destroy everything as unto the Lord. In other words, when this order came from Samuel... They were literally to destroy every building, every, every tool, every, every piece of furniture, every animal, every man, woman, and child. Literally. Think about the time when the Jewish people were coming into the Promised Land for the very first time and they marched around Jericho. Remember when they marched seven, time, seven times around Jericho for a number of days? I mean, marched a number of times around Jericho and then gave a shout and then finally the walls came and they destroyed absolutely everything? Remember when Rahab said, the, the, pros, the prostitute said, um, they said to Rahab, Get, put, put this uh, red cloth in your window and anybody that's in your room won't be harmed, but everything else is going to be destroyed. This is another story or another example of harem that's taking place. And just like Saul allowed the Kenites to leave, the people of Israel allowed Rahab and her family to leave because they were under the protection of the promise. Now, then why did they have to die? Okay, God has ordered that they have to die. The instrument of the ordering came through Samuel the prophet, who was the voice of God to the people of Israel. And the person who was supposed to enact the, be the hands of God was King Saul and his army. Why did they have to die? 
And this is hard. Because God said so. Horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And they're not told why. They are simply told God orders it. Go to the next slide, Craig. I think it's 1 Samuel. Yeah. 1 Samuel 15, 32, 33. Before you turn there, let me explain a little bit about what's going on now. We just read this a minute ago. I'm not going to take the time to read it again. But Samuel comes up and he says, I'm here, Saul. And Saul goes, I have done the will of God. <laughs> Look at me. And he's like, yeah, really? You did the will of God, huh? You harmed all of them, huh? Then why do I hear animals bleeding? Why do I hear the sound of sheep and the lowing of cattle? Oh, well, they, 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 they kept the best because they wanted to sacrifice it to God. You don't get it, do you, Saul? God doesn't care about your sacrifices. God doesn't want you to sacrifice something to him. He ordered that they should be haremed. And there was no question in your mind when you got that order. You knew what was asked of you. And he goes, well, I, I, I kept the king, but all the other people we killed. And so Samuel was like, you kept the king. Great. 1533, he says, Samuel says, bring King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So Agag comes to him cheerfully, thinking, oh, surely the bitterness of death is past. The battle's over with, and now they're wanting to just give me some kind of punishment, and then I'll have to be their slave, but at least I'm not going to die. <clears throat> and Samuel, when Agag arrives, Samuel says, he wasn't willing to do it, but I ain't afraid to do it. And it literally says what it says. He took the sword and did a real number on Agag, destroying him completely. Horrible words. So what can we learn from this horrible story? Other than to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, Craig, is there a Esther... Well, just bring up the one that says, what can we learn from this? That'll be, that'll work. What we can learn from this is that God's will will be accomplished. Saul wasn't willing to do what he knew he was supposed to do, so Samuel did it for him. Imagine the priest of God having to do what Saul was supposed to have done. But he did it because he knew it was the, the, the voice of God that ordered it. <clears throat> I shared with the kids, Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai had said to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, we always hear that you've been brought up for such a time as this. That's what we remember about Esther. But the, the message that, that Mordecai gave her was, you were brought up for such a time as this, but if you're unwilling, trust, God's going to get his will done. It just won't be done through you, but it's going to get done. Have no fear. And I would add, and you won't get the blessing 
of knowing that you worked in cooperation with the Almighty. You'll have to live with the fact that you were disobedient to God. God's still going to get God's will done, but you won't be part of the celebration. See, if you refuse to do God's will, (laughs) you lose. But I repeat, why did the Amalekites need to die? Saul wasn't told. Samuel wasn't told. They had no idea why the Amalekites were ordered for destruction. They just knew they were supposed to do it. Saul failed to do it. Samuel completed the act. But why? I've already told you why. You already know why. Do you know why? Haman. What are you guys supposed to do when I say the name Haman? Turn with me to Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Now this happened, I don't know how many hundreds of years after Samuel and Saul were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But read with me Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus, who was the the king, the, the, the king that Esther was married to, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Yegagite. Thank you the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and had his throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman the Agagite. What is an Agagite? It is a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites during the time of King Saul. God knew that Haman was going to be born. Thank you. That he was going to be born and he was going to be the sworn enemy of the Israelite people such that he would have so much power that he could literally affect the complete destruction, the complete harem, if you will, of all of the people of God. And that if he were successful, it would totally destroy our hope. Because where did Christ come from? The line of David, who was a Jew. So do you understand what God was doing when he ordered the harem of the Amalekites? God was long in advance trying to protect the plan of grace. And because one man refused to fully obey, somehow, some way, a child escaped the harem. Now, you can read accounts, whether they are fictional or factual, I couldn't answer. But you can read accounts, if you do the research, how a nurse carried a child off away from that fight between Saul and Agag, the Amalekite battle. And this nurse was able to carry this child and keep the child in secrecy until the child grew to be a man. And then 
that line continued until Haman was born. Thank you. So bring up the so what, Craig. <clears throat> the one that says so what or the so what. I always try to have a question at the end of my sermon of like, okay, well, we studied all this, so why? What's, what's so important? Why does it apply to my life? And for me, there's actually two so what's in this. Number one, we don't need to know everything. If we did, we wouldn't need God in our lives. We don't need to know everything. Rather, we need to trust that God knows everything. And we need then to trust and obey God. When I was a, a young father, is there a picture slide, Craig, of a, a, chi- a parent with a child? Okay, never mind. When I was a young father, when Renee and I were young parents and our kids were very little, I used to demand that my kids obey me without delay the first time. If I told them to do something or I I asked them to do something, whether it was an ask or a tell, and during their training, I would oftentimes be harsh in my demand. That I wanted them to know that I meant business. And I wanted their instant response. And there were people in my life, people part of my church, who thought I was trying to be a tyrant in my own home. Who thought I was to rule my house with an iron fist. And that I was being unreasonable. And they would never raise their children that way. They would raise their children in a nurturing and loving and caring home. Not one where they have a domineering father who tries to scare them into submission. But what the people who were that critical of me didn't understand or know was my motivation. See, I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I wasn't trying to be the lord of my castle. My purpose was to train my children To obey without delay at my first command. Why? Because the time would come when their lives might depend on their instant obedience. There might come the day when they were running ahead of their mother and me through a crowded parking lot. And they were headed straight into the path of an oncoming car. But because they were short, they couldn't see over the car. But because I could, I could see the danger ahead. And I needed them to stop instantly so they wouldn't get hit by the car and hurt badly or even killed. There wasn't time for me to give them lengthy instruction or explanation. I didn't have time to have a discussion in that moment. There was only time for them to hear the command and to obey instantly. I would save their life if they obeyed me instantly. That's what God 
wants from you. You don't have to understand why God asks you to do something. You simply have to obey God's command fully and instantly. Your life or the lives of those you love may depend on it. That's number one. Number two, we in the Church of the Nazarene say that our theology is Wesleyan Arminian. And what does that mean? We are holiness people. We believe that we are not just worried about getting our sins saved, but that we are to live a life of holiness before God and before fellow men. And the whole point of it is to give glory to God. The whole point of living a holy life is to give glory to the Lord. And in order to do that, to live a life of holiness, it requires me setting aside something very valuable and never, ever picking it back up again. And that is my own personal will. If I continually argue with God when he asks me to do something because I don't understand, I don't like it, I don't know. Who do you think you are? It is not about you and your likes and your dislikes and your will and your not wanting to. It is all about you obeying your Father in heaven. If you say you trust him, if you say you want to have his blessing, then that means you live a life of holiness, period. And that means I consecrate everything to you, God. There's an old-time expression called the unknown bundle. I don't know what's coming down the pike, but I give it to you even now, God. Palms down. I don't hold on to any of it. If you ask me for anything, God, the answer is yes. If you ask me to sign over the title to my car tomorrow to some stranger, the answer is yes. If you ask me to sell my home and give all of the proceeds to some person, the answer is yes. I don't have to understand. I have to obey. That is the life of holiness. And we are commanded by God in his word to be a holy people. And so I say to you, if you want to be a holy person, you need to harem you. And no longer try to resurrect it or restore it or redeem it. Because that's what Deuteronomy says. It says, do not... Did I say Deuteronomy? Leviticus. Leviticus says... If you are devoting something to God, you don't get the option of buying it back from God. It's his. No more to be picked up by human beings ever again. So, what did we learn from this? What is the so what? Number one, you don't need to know everything. You just need to trust God. And number two, if you truly want to live a life of holiness... If you truly want to be set apart for holy purposes, you need to get up, get over being in charge. You just need to let it go and let the Holy Spirit of God be the one to dictate the steps and the path and the actions. That's what the story of 1 Samuel 15 is. To obey is better than sacrifice.
Let's pray. Father God, I praise you, thank you, and bless you, and I ask that you would just be with us now. As we go out of this place, help us to carry this with us, Lord, and help us to find ways to truly trust you and to walk as you call us to walk, by following you and obeying you instantly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.